0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. What's up, everyone? And welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today, we have Pedro Colmenero and Dan Dominguez, two developers behind the upcoming title known as Evertried. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. I'm very excited that you agreed because we actually showcased uh, showcased this game a while back when you had a Kickstarter campaign for the game. Now, it was one that I think will really fit well with my gaming interests personally, so that's another reason why I'm very excited. Um, But before we get into the game, like always, I always want to hear about the people behind the games themselves. Uh, So tell me a little bit about yourselves. Uh, How did you both get into the indie game space in the first place, and how did you eventually come to work for Evertried? right um, let's start with uh pedro right right so my my background is that if
1: we, we go way back I, after i graduated school i tried to be a doctor but i guess medicine school just wasn't my cut so I <laughs> have a big difference yeah after i was dealing with my my existential crisis about one what, what i was supposed to do with my life i decided to that i really really want to work in the gaming industry so i i joined uh uh i entered college with to to get a, uh, a degree in design and after that i i was fortunate enough to get a job into the the with the biggest gaming publisher online game publisher in latin america so i was able wow. to learn a, a little bit about more a little bit about the publishing side and business development and first i was i was my main job was testing and figuring out if selecting selecting games from abroad like from korea and from from the US, if those kind of games could fit the the Brazilian crowd. So Mm -hmm. it really helped me learn more about testing games and about the aspects of games. And later on, I I really started becoming more of a business developer kind of of guy. So I went to GDC, uh, Gamescom, uh, Game Connection. So my background ended up being more on the the publisher side of things than the the developer side of things, but I really want to make games for myself. right? So right. in 2019, uh, my my business partner and I decided to found Lunik Games, which is our current game studio. And since then, we published a mobile game called taurus Mesh for Android. It's available on Google Play. And later, uh, on, later on 2019, we f- we found Danilo. We found Danilo in a in a. Game uh, in a game conference in Brazil for Indies called Big Festival, but I'll leave this story for Danilo to tell because if we're talking about the the beginning of Ever there's no person better to tell that story than Danilo. But since then, we've been really focusing on developing Ever as like our big flagship title because we we do believe it. It shows a lot about what Lunik Games is all about, which is uh, polishing a lot things that we believe in and did and not not necessarily worrying about doing very complex things, but making sure that the things that we choose to do are really trying to to hit the, the target in terms of game
0: experience and game feel. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Dan, what about you?
2: Uh, well, my name is Dan Dominguez. I was supposed to be an electrical engineer, and here we are. Uh, so basically, when uh, when I was at school, uh, I was set to be an engineer, but I liked the discipline for it. So I just was kind of falling in the rabbit hole of like trying to study and get into colleges and kind of not making. And one day I was in the kind of a, a very mini mini packs. It has had mostly anime stuff and and some game stuff. And it has like this booth about game uh, developing forms Wasn't the one I actually applied for, but that kind of spiked uh, uh-huh. uh, a spark of something I could actually pursue. And I ended up in the in the game dev industry basically out of despair because I didn't have so much to go, and this at least would give me something to go after for four years or something uh okay (laughs) i I know it's it's not the the traditional story like oh i always wanted to make games no like i I like playing games but i really needed a job and that's it
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey that works i mean yeah people need to eat
2: right yeah Of course, I did apply for games because I knew I had some backstory and stuff, but it was something I had never thought of before. Uh, It kind of worked. In college, I ended up leaning towards um, programming and stuff. As my course was actually about design, there weren't that many programmers in the course, which made going through it actually pretty easy. Uh, then I moved into making my games. I have a published game on HIO named Catnip, mm-hmm. which you should not play. Play every it's much better. But, <laughs> but hey!
0: Everybody's got to start somewhere, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, the thing
2: is, I went for big... Uh, it's Brazilian games. It's this festival that we talked about and I was actually looking for publishers for CatNet. Turns out I didn't found any, but I got a lot of people interest in Evertret. At the time, it was just like a, a very raw mm-hmm. prototype. If you go to my Twitter, one of the very first posts is about this prototype. It's like Cowboys and lives, whatever good placeholder was able to find. But Pedro seemed to really like it, uh, got his attention. And then we went on to basically expand the project. I was developing with a former partner. (laughs) Um, It really didn't work. When we needed the art that was her part of of the partnership, she jumped off and went Mm -hmm. to work as a quality assurance in some company. And basically the project was stuck. So the the side objective going to the festival was finding a, a partner to pick the project back up. Since then it has been one right. year and a half, and uh, I was really amazed by how much Lunik has uh, made ever tried to be what it is today. Actually,
0: yeah, no, I think it's I think it's pretty interesting because I, I you don't see this a lot where you have a development team or a publishing team uh, like Lunic Games in in this regards, and, and this is obviously more development side but then also having that solo dev who is attached to this, this project as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, I mean, I, I guess out of curiosity, how did this partnership start as in meaning rather than you joining Lunic games with this idea of keeping that identity of you as the solo dev and Lunic joining you, so to speak. Mm.
2: Okay. This is one of those three questions. As your as <laughs> people. But that's okay. We have a long-lasting <laughs> relationship.
0: Uh, well, um, and that's and that's fine either. I mean, really, it could just be more more or less. I'm I'm looking into like what that conversation was like. Okay, little, okay. You know. Yeah. The 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 back and forth of you trying to find that partnership with them.
2: The thing is, Evertrade was supposed to be a lot smaller than what it is today. Uh, the I, the start goal was, like, I had made the, the prototype in two to three months. We would make the art in another two to three months, and then we would push it to the stores. As we developed and the team really got along fine, the teams, actually, um, we started to see a lot more potential in the game than what we first thought. So the game went from, like, mm-hmm. six months of developing to two years. That's roughly what it is now. And Mm -hmm. because of that, it kind of stayed this way. The the initial idea was that Lunik would only develop the art assets, such as special effects and sprites and stuff. Uh, And we would keep most of the the code that was already developed because we had a very functional prototype. Um, Mm -hmm. But as we expanded, we ended up keeping things as they are, and that's where we are now. Uh, LUNIC represents most of the team uh, because on my side, it's just me and my partner, Gabriel, that's a game designer in QA in the team. But most of it is LUNIC working with uh, basically design, art, localization as far as uh, Portuguese goes. And we also have the, the other team that jumped in just before the
0: Kickstarter. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just think it's a, a very unique partnership that you don't see a lot. That's the only reason why I wanted to ask. But but before we go any further, let's dive into what this game is all about. So for those who might not know anything about the game or you know never saw the Kickstarter, how would you describe this game and what sets it apart from others? I guess the main design, design
1: philosophy behind the game is... At first, we were talking about how it, it was supposed to be a roguelike kind of experience, right? Because you can mm-hmm. try, you often die, and then you start again. But the more you play, the more you understand the game and the game mechanics. So you tend to, to go further and further. Uh, however, the when we were trying some mechanics out and asking players to give feedback, we realized that one of the most fun parts I've ever tried was about outmaneuvering enemies, especially using the hazards on each floor. Because mm-hmm. besides enemies that move and are basically your opponents in and, and Evertride. On each floor, there are also some traps of the tower itself. So players can try to destroy those traps and just get rid of them. But when players started to take advantage of them and use them to kill the enemies, then the fun factor started, started to ramp up. So when we realized that, we tried to make Evertride as much as possible about you're feeling like a tricky mastermind. You're developing a, a plan to outmaneuver everything, developing like a big play to kill a bunch of enemies with one single stroke. So everything you never tried is about movement, is about making every action matter in, in the game and using your resources to try to stay alive because you only have three points of life, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the, this, this journey to trying to reach after life with the smallest amount of mistakes as possible
2: yeah on a more mechanical level it's one of the main inspirations was transistor because it takes a very action back a genre, and makes it slow so you have that ability to slow things down we wanted to do the opposite with the athletics so you have this board that's basically a, a tadx game board uh, as so much that mm-hmm. Enemies only move when you do, so it, it has a, like an inbuilt turn system. But we wanted to make so that the player has to act quickly. Uh, we don't impose a timer, but the game flows better and gives you better rewards when you act within a certain pace. Very close to what uh, hack and slash games do, like Bayonetta and Nevermind May Right,
0: right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And anyone who knows me uh, personally knows that like roguelikes and roguelites are one of my favorite genres. Um, I think it is interesting though that you went this more, you know, turn-based or strategy approach because a lot more of the modern roguelikes you see today are generally of that more fast-paced, you know, real-time approach. Um, you kind of alluded to it already, but what was that main inspiration for why did you really want to go the, the strategy route or that more uh, focused, you know, take your time approach, but also adding that element of, of trying to be as quick as you can?
1: We, we did build a, a very early alpha version of the game with just the core mechanics of the game, like moving, attacking, using skills and having enemies and hazards in, in the game. And mm-hmm. it was mainly a feedback, that, uh, the feedback from the players that helped us make that make that decision, because mm-hmm. like Danilo said, we do have a, a system called focus system, which reward the player the the faster he plays, right? So if right. if you keep your focus going, the, your focus level starts uh, getting higher and higher and higher, and you get more rewards for defeating enemies, and your powers become some powers become stronger based on the, your focus level. But you don't need the focus level to play the game. You can play the, the game taking like one hour for each turn and, and doing fine. But we really need, needed to decide if you wanted to to push the fast-paced kind of gameplay for, for the game or if you wanted to make it more slow and more strategy, reminding a little bit of our tactical RPGs. And what right. we found out is if you let the players take their time to, to make the turns and make mistakes and learn about their mistakes, they don't feel pressured to feel they got cheated cheated out of uh a death or they took damage that they once weren't supposed to take but it still leaves them uh room for improvement because once they start ke- getting in the hang of the, the mechanics they start playing faster themselves so yeah so being able to play faster is part of you realizing you're getting really better in in ever tried so it was more about the, the kind of experience that was most tied to, to the fun of the game was doing a good tactical movements, so strategy, making traps for enemies. And if you pressure some kind of players, they they, they aren't able to do that in a such a small time if you don't give them enough room for them to, to learn about using those kind of tools. So if we try to make something that enables players to experience enough with the game that the strategy becomes a second nature to them, Then when they start to play fast and the game allows them to play fast, it will feel much more rewarding to them.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I want to just, uh, ask you a little bit more to elaborate kind of on the mechanic of that bar, because I think it is an interesting, uh, change of pace, right? Because it it really does blend that combination of a very thoughtful, methodical approach to playing this game and kind of turns it on its head. By mm-hmm. saying, well, you can also play it a totally different way of being much quicker, which obviously comes with expertise of understanding the environment, the enemies, the mechanics that you have at your disposable or disposal, excuse me. But what exactly, you know, how much of a, a detriment? You mentioned that it it wouldn't be too punishing for mm-hmm. not racking that bar, but like, how much of a detriment does it take? for, you know, me not getting those extra uh, abilities or, you know, whatever those increased goodies are that I get from getting a high score, quote unquote. Right. Uh, so it's a good analogy would be a snowball effect. So if
1: you were able to keep your focus high, then you get, get access to very powerful skills that if your focus level drops, then they stop working like at all. Mm-hmm. So it's a balance of finding out your, the right rhythm to build your we call it modifiers, which are like passive effects you can get, get, which can add damage after you make a dash, or they can leave like a trap after you make a dash, or mm-hmm. they can retaliate after an enemy hits you. And mm-hmm. we also have active skills that we just call skills, which you have to use your resources to actually cast them. So it's a combination of skills and modifiers that make your build, that gives you the, the tools to, to try to, to defeat Try. If you decide to play slower and taking your time, you're having a much more defensive approach, so you're taking less risk because you're taking more time to, to think about your movement, which is great mm-hmm. because if you take three damage, then you're done. So right. taking damage is really, really, really bad in Try, more than other games, maybe. And, however, uh, there are some effects that are really powerful that you won't be able to trigger based on your focus level. So we have, let me think, we have an effect called R.I.P., which is in our demo, which is a modifier. If mm-hmm. you have R.I.P. Uh, equipped and your focus level is at least five, then every time you defeat an enemy, it, it gives you basically mana to cast skills. So it's like a really powerful effect to keep like defeating enemies and using skills over and over again. However, if your focus drops from five, then it, it doesn't do anything until you get to the to focus level five again. Hmm. However, the, the the modifiers that have a lower level of triggering and, and becoming more stronger, they they tend to be better for defensive play. So we have a modifier called shock, where if an enemy hits you, the enemy gets stunned for one turn. So if you take damage at least it gives you a a window to try to to reposition. Right. And so we try to make things that support both kind of styles but eventually players will we, we believe they will inevitably move to playing faster and try to more risky um, risky skills and risky modifiers to to try to go for that snowball effect of having a really powerful build that if something goes wrong then everything goes wrong but it's, it's fun to try to
0: yeah so i i really enjoy the the turn-based element to it but adding that that quicker pace to it um i wanted to quickly just make sure and clarify now every turn that you have every movement every action you're essentially being mirrored by the enemy so if you move they'll move if you mm-hmm. attack they'll also move or do an attack i'm correct in this idea yes yes, yes. that's great
1: They you. Act- okay
0: right after you go exactly do you have any idea as far as what their intention is going to be i'm thinking uh very much of like into the breach in this so you know kind of where they're going or is this more of you have to assume what action they're going to take next and use your best judgment to uh, adjust where you are or what attack you're doing Want to take that one yeah
2: sure so basically the enemies uh they act after you do and based on what position you're going to land on so there's no clear indication of what the enemies will do uh before they started some action so the ranged enemies they mark the tiles that they're going to attack and stuff but before they start an action you have to deduce that based on observation it feeds a lot into what pedro said Mm -hmm. about playing the game and learning the enemies and we also have oh, yeah. the Towerpedia to assist in that learning uh, experience because you can encounter the enemies, then open the Towerpedia, see what they're described by, and know what to expect of them. I think accessing this knowledge like, uh, from the mind at a quick pace is another component of playing Everdrive on a high level.
0: Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um and diving a little bit deeper into combat as well. So, as far as the trailer goes, I was looking this up. Many of the enemies they seem to be one-hit kills. Uh, there were a few that that weren't, I think, but it was in a lot of them it was you would hit them and they would instantly die, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is this going to be the same with with all enemies? Like I didn't see a health bar. What's the indication of, you know, how much damage you're doing, how much damage the mm-hmm. the enemies will do? Is there ever going to be a time where say they're doing more than just one hit to you or is it always kind of that one hit phase right so this actually wasn't one of the biggest design challenges that we have and we actually
1: end up making a, a kickstarter post talking about designing in increments of one talking about mm-hmm. how having like only three points of help to the player and dealing with one point of damage and one points of armor and those kind of things really mm-hmm. makes makes a challenge to create more skills and effects but right. this clip Every enemy can be defeated with only one hit. However, they may have a shield icon above their head, which indicates gotcha. that they have armor. So we have to first destroy the armor and then kill the enemy, or deal enough damage, like two points of damage, that would break the armor and kill the enemy in one go. And
0: right. enemies
1: also may may have a sword icon above their head, and that that sword icon indicates that they deal one point of bonus damage. But Mostly in your in your main campaign on normal game mode, just playing the game, you will encounter enemies that have either just one HP or uh, one HP and uh, armor buff, but you, you will find sometimes surprising how hard it is to defeat an enemy that has armor, although you just kind of think, yeah, just two points of damage, no big deal, I'm just going to, to hit it twice. But hitting mm-hmm. some something twice and never tried is already a big challenge because you you don't want to take damage yourself. So you want to reposition and everything. And not only you don't want to take damage because you don't want to die, but if you take damage, your focus level is reduced by half. So mm. it's like a really st- st- steep damage that you take in both assets, aspects of resources, of focus, of your positioning, and everything that you lost, your modifiers turning off. So it, it you, you have to really take advantage of positioning to deal with with enemies that have more than one point of health.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I really like that approach. It makes it interesting, though, you kind of mentioned the difficulty of working with, you know, how do we keep ramping up different skills or how do we create these abilities that only kind of are, are limited in this realm to more or less that one HP or two HP, like very small increments of damage. Mm-hmm. So can you give me uh, maybe an example or two of some of those different types of abilities or skills that you ended up coming up with? Sure, sure. Um,
1: one thing that I, I think it's fun to mention it is when we did have the Alpha version in November of 2019, we we had a skill that on itself it dealt, it, it traveled three Three tiles in a line, and on each tile it dealt it, it dealt one damage, and on the last tile it could deal twice that damage and also stun every unit in its path. So mm-hmm. that was like our overpowered ceiling of skills that we didn't want to reach again. So right. we tried to think out outside of the box about what kind of utility we can add to the skills and what are what is the purpose behind each skill. So, for instance, we we knew we wanted to give Players uh, options that are defensive that that are more towards utility and also offensive skills and the I guess the flagship offensive skills offensive skill we never tried is called Divine Blade which is a ranged option that you can strike an enemy that's one tile away from you so it's, it has one one tile of range based on your basic attack mm-hmm. but it costs four charges you have a maximum of five charges which is basically the the mana of Evertride. And every time you take a step, you recover one charge. So, if the first thing that you want to do in reaching a floor is to cast Divine Blade, first you have to take four steps, right? Hmm. And so, we really try to figure out, okay, what's the point of Divine Blade? Divine Blade should be an option that is for dealing with ranged enemies or enemies that you want to hit before they reach you. And so, range is the the biggest point of the skill. However, if if we don't uh, if we don't balance the cost of that skill, that's just going to be overpowered because it's basically a, a basic attack that you can hit from far away. So we decided to have a, a huge charge cost for for that skill, and every time that skill evolves, which is something that I guess we didn't mention before, but if you use a skill uh, enough 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 times, it can actually evolve into a more powerful version. So every mm-hmm. time that fine blade evolves, it gains more range, so you can t- start to to hit. One enemy at first, and two enemies are far away, then four enemies far away. This would be our approach for offensive skills. And regarding defensive skills, I guess one of my favorite examples is Light Feet, which is a buff kind of effect that when you use, you have 50% of chance of completely dodging an incoming attack. However, if you don't dodge, you take twice the damage.
0: Ooh, so
1: interesting. every time that we, we give a, an effect, we try to balance out with a purpose on our stra- or a strategy behind. That doesn't mean that Light Fit is just a, a risky option, because there are other things that can be combined with Light Fit to try to reduce that risk. There is a modifier called Energy Mental, where if you have full full charges on your character, so you have maximum resource for casting skills, and mm-hmm. you take damage, instead of taking damage in your life, your charges will absorb that, absorb the, that, that damage so um. if you combine energy mental with light feet you can be more or less of a tank in every tried where you're taking up slots for more offensive skills or other more offensive oriented modifiers so adding utility and purpose behind each modifier and each skill to enable them to to synergize with each other to enable players to create their own build to suit their their play style, was our main goal behind making modifiers and skills right right
0: uh i'm i'm really glad you brought up that leveling part because i I did want to know a little bit more about that but the the main thing that i want to know is more or less how much of a roguelike first roguelite this is um and what i mean by that is um specifically with abilities i think it's interesting because you can get those abilities from shops which happen every uh 10 or so levels i believe Mm -hmm. it was um now when you start every run are you starting from like, you know, ground zero, you have nothing. You then go in and you get whatever abilities come to you. Is this something where you can kind of start off with certain starting abilities that you get to pick or, or can you change things? Like, what does that look like from starting each run? Right. So most of your, your game,
1: your gameplay you never tried will be you starting with anything, just your, your dash and your basic attack. Mm-hmm. and you can pick up modifiers and skills on, on store floors. However, if you actually end up evolving a skill to its master level, so it has, it has four, bi- four basic levels. You start a skill with level zero, mm-hmm. and you can evolve that skill three times. On the, the fourth level, it, it gets a golden frame, and you can opt to start your new runs with that skill already equipped. And you can do that for all skills. You can try to master, master all the skills. And every time you start a new run, you can opt to start with no skills at all. Or you can pick one skill that's already maxed out for you to start equip in your loadout.
0: That's pretty cool. I like that. It makes it a little bit uh, you know, more accessible if you're yeah. possibly having a, a tougher time with the game.
2: Yeah, because you don't lose anything by doing that. When you purchase a new skill, you can just swap that out with the skill you already have. So it actually makes it a little easier unless you're looking to do a clean
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, from the trailer, the fallen warrior you're playing is currently in search of the afterlife. And he, or they, are traveling from level to level in this process. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, can you give us a bit more background into the story as to why uh, they're stuck in this strange purgatory-like world? Right, that's a great question and I'm really excited to talk about
1: that because one of the feedbacks that we got from you guys was about the lack of more story or context on what's going on with the game because our Kickstarter trailer was really focused on gameplay. And right. after you talk about that, was like, yeah, shoot, we should have put a little bit of story and context in the trailer. So <laughs> I'm glad to have this opportunity now. Um, okay, so basically in, in the in the universe of Try, uh, souls either go to the afterlife or they go to eternal dam- damnation. But okay. sometimes there are some souls that when their body dies, it, the gods are not sure where they should go. And that's why the tower was created, to try the souls that we don't know where they should go. So based on the occupation of the soul when it was alive, you have a different kind of trial. So mm. if you are a doctor, then you have to heal different diseases in the tower. If you were a gardener, then you have to tend to a garden in the tower. But if you were a warrior, then you have to battle your way to the top. Mm-hmm. However, y- your, the warrior that we control doesn't have any memory about why he, they, they are in the tower, right? They, they don't know how they die. They don't know um, much about the, their previous life, and and you deduce along with the warrior about that he was a warrior, and the little information that you can add. At, at, by the the start of the game and as you progress through the tower then you may encounter other npcs and interact with them to learn more about the tower the universe of have ever tried and more details about your death so not only you want to reach the afterlife to with your warrior to beat the game but there's also a mystery about why is the 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 warrior in the tower why is is he dead right
0: right Okay, yeah, that's actually cool. I'm I'm very excited to to learn more about the the warrior story. So, on the thought of these different levels or climbing this tower, right? I am assuming that each of these will generally have about uh, a number of sections. I believe in the Kickstarter, there was initially, uh, I think it was 50 levels or so. I just kind of wanted to touch base and see if that had changed, uh, you know, from, you know, the Kickstarter to now, or if there was any uh, deviations into, you know, those different levels, bosses, sections, whatever it might be. Right,
1: right. The, The Tower still has 50 floors on the main game and we also unlock through stretch goals on kickstarter the mode, that also have 50 floors but it's it's harder right <laughs> so right, right. different kind <laughs> different kind of enemies and more complex kind of of layouts of floors and yeah, it's a it's a tougher challenge generally and but we still keep on to the to the to the fifth. sorry we still have 50 floors and mm-hmm. that relates to how the tower, the tower has different sections the inspiration behind the aesthetics of the tower and the progression, visually speaking, of the tower, uh, was both the Divine Comedy, so Dante's Inferno, and yep. also the five stages of grief. So oh, okay. you start out like in a very snowy place that's kind of mystical, but not too, not too strange. It kind of reminds you some, too, of somewhere that could be in the, the world of the living. And that's mm-hmm. denial because you start out not really sure about what just happened and not sure if you're dead or not. And mm-hmm. then you progress to anger. That's more of fiery kind of atmosphere and everything's more uh, impulsive. Everything seems like it does more damage or damage you to more things. And to structure the tower in five sections with five clear aesthetics choices really made the tower work for us in terms of narrative standpoints. Mm-hmm. and. Even though the, the Kickstarter was great and we got a, a lot of stretch goals in it, we decided to to improve on the complexity of, of certain aspects of, of the tower than, rather than just make the tower bigger or just put more floors.
0: Right. Right. I think that makes sense. Probably a better better way of doing it where you're you're putting more polish into what's already there as opposed to just adding more content. Yes. Right. That's awesome. And, and on average, about how long will each one of these runs? So, you know, trying to get from that level one to fifty, how, how long will that generally take a player to uh, for them to complete? Right. Um
1: that's a, a tricky question because every tried being a roguelite, we expect you to die a lot when trying right. to, to clear the floor. Uh, if we're talking about cleaning the floor in sorry, clearing the tower in one sweep. I guess you could do that in like 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes if you're really good at the game. Right. But I'm, I'm really ashamed of, of telling you this, but I, I, guess within our team, I was, I'm the one that went the furthest in the tower, mm-hmm. and I died on floor on the, on the floor 49. Oh my goodness! So yeah, close. yeah. There's an enemy that I'm going to nerf the hell out of him because this. <laughs> yep. Just out of spite, it's working great, but just out of spite, he just can can't seem to. He's just too smart for me. So, <laughs> so yeah, we expect. Although you can beat the tower directly theoretically in thirty minutes, mm-hmm. there's a plenty of, of playtime for you to get there in terms of skills. And we're not talking about enemies that are just shoot up to kill, or enemies that are are more powerful than you. We're talking about of you mastering movement and mastering. Out uh, positioning in the tower because that's the most important aspects about what's going to kill you or not in that town.
0: Right. <laughs> Well, that's got to be frustrating. Um, but spe- so speaking of that, though, I-, I already mentioned it a little bit as far as like the abilities and things. Are there any other um, forms of progression that are outside of those runs? Uh, you mentioned story bits. Wise, there's there's a bit of that progression. But is there anything that can help for those people who might struggle uh, getting through to those higher levels? Hmm, that's besides mastering
1: skills. And we also have in the narratives the ten point. The the more you encounter some NPCs, the more the story gets unveiled. So if you mm-hmm. encounter the same NPC three times, then the three times you're going to have different kind of, of stories, and the story will evolve. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. um, in terms of having the tools to do, to deal with the tower, it's more up to the player movement. Right than anything else so i'm sorry if the game is too hard in the beginning but trust me there's some kinds of of clicks that the player is going to have mo- mostly re- regarding using hazards as a tool to defeat enemies and also using the dash to make enemies come to you rather than go t- to the enemy when those right. things click for the player they will really they will have the uh they will really understand that they can do much better in terms of 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 getting higher in the tower but other than that, please just try your hardest. <laughs> <And> I promise <laughs> that the game is not unfair. Just try your hardest, and you you get more. It's
2: kind of the dark Souls Yeah, props. that's totally fair. Just
0: keep good. Yeah, <laughs> just get good. That's a uh, that's totally a a valid response in in a lot of cases. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it is what it is I, i'm sure that a lot of people will find that that room to love it and for those who who have a little bit more challenge it's just you know you got to keep uh plugging away and then eventually those things will click like you said i guess
1: one thing that we can we can say is try different builds if you're always picking up divine blade and trying to kill all enemies uh, before they reach you and it's not working out don't stick with the same strategies try other things because you're not like danilo said before you're not losing anything on the worst scenario you just got some mastery points for a skill that maybe will evolve during your next playthrough so try different things try combining skills and modifiers for different effects sure. and think of outside of the box that maybe can help some players there
2: are so many skills right. that that become a beast on their mastered level and are almost useless i not almost useless but you you can see a deficit uh on their base level so it really is there to make Share you go out there, try new stuff, learn about new stuff, and maybe find out something that you didn't imagine would be so good for you.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, experimentation is key. Um, so I I wanted to talk about this just because being a person who's constantly on Kickstarter looking for games to promote, you know, we talk about one every week. I always enjoy hearing from those who have actually gone through a successful campaign because I think there's a lot of obvious like pros and cons to Kickstarters, there's obvious worries, obvious successes and, and you know, and enjoyment that people get out of it, but it's it's a lot, right? So I just wanted to throw kind of an open-ended question your way, and it, it's really just, you know, what was that Kickstarter experience like for you? Why don't you start out with that one? Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, I think my experience is more depth-sided because beta was the one handling, um, basically, interaction with uh, our backers and stuff. Just before we launched the campaign, it was intense, to say the least. Uh, we had to patch up the build, and we and we needed to make sure we had as much content as possible. The Towerpedia, as you know it, uh, was kind of a last-minute epic to make sure that got into the build. And there were two backers that actually said something about it and just just made money. But um, it was intense. <laughs> it was re- awesome. very intense. After we, we got the build out, uh bit the guys who were dealing uh, with the backers and interacting with people, basically. And I just had to take uh, one to two days off to basically let the burnout free. up. But other than that, I, I was yeah. very, very touched by how many people I wanted to support our project. We were constantly checking the the kickstart funding meter. Actually, doing work, I had to polish myself to not look at Kickstarter the whole time because I was looking at work during one second and Kickstarter during the next ten, and you know, just couldn't get any work done. Because it's another <laughs> thing when it's your game, right? Uh, it's actually mm-hmm. they're founding your ideas and there's new stuff you can. Maybe do because of that. And there's no way I won't talk about the the parking goal, because that was our big boss during funding. We actually got through funding pretty fast, but during the campaign, uh, our big boss was getting to the consoles. And we got there so close that we weren't even able to update the Kickstarter page, because as Pedro said, once the the timer ends, you can't update uh, the main page anymore. So, yeah, it was, it was really really a, a trio to be part of, uh, and you just can't not look at the page once you're there, you know. Um, and I, I was really excited about uh, the feedback, too. There was this one backer that she, she wanted to play on, on her joystick, and we really didn't include controller support early on and then we just made a patch mm-hmm. one two, two, two days later, including joystick support. And then there was this one guy, okay, but I have a PS4 controller. And I was like, okay, just just give me a day to rest. I'll patch it up, I promise. And it worked, it worked. <laughs> Turns out that I only had a PS4 controller at, at home too, so it, it was good to test from from there on. But the, the sole talk on um, having uh, your game on the Switch uh, I personally grew up playing Nintendo, so for me it was such a big loop from going uh, from fan to to creator, you know. that, yeah means a lot to me. Um, I'm developing this game, waiting for the day I'll be able to play it on the Switch.
1: Right, and and in the end we did start a Kickstarter campaign with little to no social media following, because we, we had to set up a Twitter page for Evertride itself and set up a Discord channel for Evertride itself. So we didn't have any cloud before the Kickstarter. So we, we weren't sure if we were actually going to be able to make it right. Oh, and really? in, and the, by the end of the campaign, we had more than 600 backers. And we can look the list on our the credit scene and how many people just give us so much support and were there with us and play the game and everything. And one of the things that I really want to talk about is how much of a great community we we found out with other indie developers that had their own Kickstarter during our our Kickstarter. We did a lot of cross-promotions that were almost all for for friendship reasons because there were a lot (laughs) of cool projects that we really want to support. And we felt that we had brothers in arms in this Kickstarter race. And it never felt like competition. It really felt like we're all dealing with the same struggles. And it was just great to get in touch with other projects and other developers, some of which we still keep uh, talking to and keep in contact and just exchange information. It just was an amazing experience. It, it it could have been a lonely road to do your first Kickstarter without much experience on, on the social media things. But mm-hmm. having being able to talk with other indie developers on Twitter, and um, like the, the developer, for Haiku the Robot, the developers mm-hmm, for Dendy mm-hmm. for Ace, and the developers for a tail. Those guys are all amazing. It was great to be around them uh, before Kickstarter going.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's that's one of the cool things about the indie community. I, I've noticed, especially with the, the Kickstarter campaigns, they, it, it seems to be a very t- close group of individuals when it comes to this, because yeah, you, you mentioned it, you know, you're, you're all trying to achieve the same thing, right? It, it only makes sense that everyone has each other's backs to try and promote one another. Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. It, it just feels like, uh, we, if we're there for each other, then every kind of challenge it's, is less of a steep mountain and every kind of achievement is more rewarding. Yeah.
2: There was this one moment with the team. Uh, that we're basically including the backers in our credits as it should be, but there were a lot of backers, so we, we kind of had to automate the solution a bit to like assemble the credits. But once they were done, they were like a solid column of backers, and we were just uh, seeing this perform in our weekly meeting and really touched by how many people were there. Uh, because when you're working on, on the engine, uh, what the camera sees is kind of a square, but you can see what it is on the total. So you can just imagine, like, uh, the credits in the movie. It's just one big column, and we could see most of the column was just the backers that make this happen. And that's pretty touching.
0: That's awesome. Um, so let's... Before we, we wrap this up, I just want to say thank you to both of you. Obviously, uh, I'm very excited that you were able to come on and talk about your game because there's a lot of things that I didn't know. And I'm, I'm, you know, much more excited about the game coming out. But that being said, let's talk about the game actually coming out. So with any game devs I talk to when they have their game currently in development, I understand that I'm not going to get an exact release date because that would be crazy. But I do see you have a current ETA of fall 2021. And this window was just given recently, so I, I don't anticipate any crazy updates as of right now, or, or something where you know you're gonna switch it right away. Um, but in general, I just like to ask, you know, how is development going? How confident are you in hitting that release window, and how are things progressing?
1: Right. we're very confident in that release window because there is a, a lot of work to be done in terms of localization support and console porting support and making sure we 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 have enough time to set up the steam page and do a little bit of promotion because no matter how good your game is if people don't know about that your game that's just going to flops right so mm-hmm. you cannot develop the game until the very the very day you launch it you have to give give room for for just talking about your game and trying to to raise awareness and so the the game uh, until that that date there's a lot of Polishment to, to be done, but it's more like the, the game is done. We're just trying to, to make sure it runs properly on all consoles, making sure everything that we want players to see are there, everything's working properly. So the having enough time for to, to make sure that everything's running properly is really reassuring for us. And it's also giving us the, the opportunity to add a little bit more flair to the game because since when we launched our kickstarter we were talking about launching on march of this year and we had to change the the launch window we decided to put just a little bit more effort into the game and actually update all the animations for the game uh, Mm -hmm. as a sign of thank you for the patience of our backers and thank you for understanding that we had to push the the launch window and it was actually an opportunity because the amount of support that we have to give for localization and and porting is a more technical side of things. So the art team can like put their hands into just putting a little bit of more content into the game, maybe make it it look more more appealing to, to the players.
0: Right. Well, I just want to thank you both. Uh, For those listening, Evertried is currently in development. But if any of this sounded interesting to you, be sure to check out their demo over on Game Jolt. And follow their Twitter account at Evertried Games for any updates. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you for the time.